Hello and welcome to Objective Health. Um, I'm going to be your host today. My name is Elliot and today I'm going to be joined by Doug, uh, Tiffany and Erica. Welcome everyone. Hello. Hello. So on this show today, what we are going to be looking at is the skin. So we're going to be examining um, some cool facts about the skin, some things that people probably didn't know about. And then later on, we're going to be going into some of the things that can go wrong with the skin. We're going to be looking at some of the nutrients that you need for healthy skin um, and some of the things that are involved in uh, various disorders of skin health, what people might be able to do. So hopefully there'll be some practical recommendations um, involved in that. But first of all, I'd just like to um, introduce the topic of skin, actually, because it's quite fascinating. Um, there's loads of things that I didn't previously know about it. So it's technically classed as the largest organ in the body. Now, we don't really tend to view the skin as an organ, but it is um, because an organ is defined as a part of the body that's essentially self-contained um, and plays a specific role. And that is what the skin is. Um, and so, so we see it's the largest organ, but uh, essentially, uh, aside from or, or the way that it differs from many other organs, in, in one way is that it can stretch really quite far. Mm -hmm. It has a unique stretching ability. So other organs can't really do that. Whereas the skin, if you look at the skin on your knuckles, um, it can stretch a lot more than the skin on your arms, for instance. There's multiple different layers to the skin as well. So you have the epidermis, you have the dermis, and you have the subcutaneous layer as well. Um, and uh, the average person's skin apparently weighs, on average, around nine pounds. Um, and it spans, if you were to skin a human being and sort of stretch it out, then it spans 21 square feet. Um, so that's quite large. <laughs> it's quite large. Every every 28 days or roughly every month, um, your skin completely renews itself. So the skin that you currently have on your hand and on your arm and on your face will not be there next month. And I find that quite interesting. Um, well, oddly enough, though, even though it does regenerate, you still have the same moles and scars and everything that you had 28 tattoos. days before. Yeah, and the tattoos. So does it regenerate like its vitamin content? Because it doesn't completely regenerate itself, I would argue. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> Neither do I. <clears throat> Maybe the skin just regenerates, but it keeps on regenerating like i don't know how tattoos work that's for sure but like for moles and stuff like that maybe it just keeps on regenerating kind of the same in the same pattern that it did before same with scars too right i mean scars will stay there yeah regardless of that skin regenerating so you have your same template basically but it's just newer cells it's the morphogenic field yes mm. That's a good one. Just keeps on regenerating according to that same thing. Yeah, well, apparently every minute your skin sheds 30,000 
dead cells. Um, wow. And those wow. dead, dead, dead skin cells essentially um, are released into the air. You can't see them. Um, but I guess if you shine a really bright light, you can see all of the dust. It essentially makes up around 50% of dust. So if you were to dust your house, your home, around the dust around your home on your furniture, about 50% of that is apparently dead skin. Hmm. Another 50% is cat hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, well, kind of to add to that too, uh, dead skin is responsible for about a billion tons of dust in the atmosphere. Wow. It's kind of gross to think about, actually. We really but... are responsible for global warming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're talking about dimming the sun right now. Maybe they just need more skin dust <laughs> to stop global warming. So, yeah. I mean, that's pretty interesting stuff about the skin. I mean, I always found it kind of interesting that it's actually like part, like in, in some ways it's actually considered part of the immune system because it's kind of like a physical barrier between the outside world and our internal world mm -hmm. so it's kind of like it's that physical barrier and there's a lot of things actually on the skin that are there as kind of defenses and um, determining what gets absorbed and what doesn't get absorbed we've got um, a extensive microbiome on the skin as well that forms a uh, it has defensive capabilities as well as other capabilities. It's like there's an entire ecosystem going on on your skin that we're completely unaware of all the time. So I always found that to be pretty, pretty fascinating. And it's responsible for one fourth of the body's detoxification process. Mm. Uh, so sometimes it's known as the third kidney. Mm. Like just yeah. by excreting stuff, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so when you think of your skin, you typically see it as some kind of inert substance, like, a, you know, like a rubbery just kind of thing that covers you. But actually, it's it's highly metabolically active and there's lots of things going on. Like Erica said, it's one of the ways that you not only get rid of things, but it's actually on multiple different fronts how you can allow things to come into your body as well. You know, the skin is somewhat waterproof um or it is waterproof but at the same time it's also semi-permeable so it's permeable to various things especially fat soluble things um and so the things that you come into contact with can actually enter through the skin through the skin you when you think of things entering your body especially when we're talking about um toxic chemicals and whatnot you think okay if i'm not breathing it in and if I'm not eating it, you know, if I've got a clean diet and I'm not ingesting or inhaling exhaust fumes and whatnot, then that's a cool way to be healthy. But we often tend to neglect the amount of things that our skin comes into contact with, especially if we're talking about things like cleaning products. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big one because many of the cleaning products that we're using are inevitably going to touch the skin, especially if people don't wear gloves. And that is really being absorbed uh, direct, directly through the barrier. And, and really, there's a good argument to be made. I mean, there are some interesting studies showing that 
various chemicals, the um, absorption of various chemicals increases significantly through the skin because um, if you were to ingest it orally, then your body has certain sort of inbuilt defense mechanisms to be able to metabolize that and be able to prevent the absorption or if it is absorbed, go to the liver and dealt with and then excreted back out through the urine of the feces. Whereas when you're ingesting it, when you're, when it's touching your skin, essentially you're bypassing that mechanism and it has a, a quicker route to get directly into the bloodstream. So for instance, if we're looking at things like shampoos, um, sodium laurel sulfate or many of the, you know, there's phthalates in shampoos, there's all these kinds of chemicals and you're putting them directly on your head, especially under hot water, um, you're potentially getting stuff like into the brain mm-hmm. um, or very close to the brain. And that's that's a, a major concern, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the same thing goes for cosmetics. Like women put all this makeup on their faces, not realizing that whatever they put on their face is gonna get absorbed into your skin. Like. I usually don't wear makeup, but the times that I have, I notice that if I put some makeup on during the morning and then go out and come back in later, it's like, there's no makeup on my face. Like, where did it go? I didn't rub it off. so (laughs) It had to have gotten absorbed. And the FDA does not regulate cosmetics the way they do like foodstuffs or uh, Mm -hmm. medications or supplements that you take into your body. But really, I mean, it's going to go into your body. It's just going by a different route. Yeah, they're actually, um, the cosmetics industry is self-regulated on that Mm -hmm. front because the FDA has determined it's not the same thing as food. Therefore, they don't need to regulate it. So So if you can't eat it, then you you probably shouldn't be putting it on your skin. (laughs) Yeah. Although the interesting thing is that that kind of goes both ways, although like, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to be cautious about, but it's actually there, there are methods for actually taking in like nutrients or medicines or that sort of thing through the skin. Um, I'm thinking like about, you know, if you do a magnesium bath or a sodium bicarbonate bath or something like that, essential oils, those kinds of things, you can put those on the skin and they'll actually get absorbed in that way. So, um, you know, particularly if you're trying to get more magnesium, and you just don't want to be doing a lot of supplements or you don't want to hit bowel tolerance with the supplements or something like that, taking a magnesium bath is actually a good way to do it because your skin will actually take it in. Yeah, likewise, if someone's got some kind of um, gastric condition whereby there's, there's severe malabsorption, but you need to get nutrients into someone, transdermal application of other things like, um, you know, I frequently recommend... Um, a type of thiamine, which is in a cream and um, because certain people or there's certain sulfur compounds, which when people ingest via the gut, because there's such a strong dysbiosis that they just can't tolerate it. Like they can't tolerate the sulfur. It produces all kinds of toxic gases and things. And so they need to get it into the body in another way. Um, and transdermal is, is, you know, it's fantastic for that. Um, so that is a really good point. Yeah, be one of the benefits of like mineral whirlpools or mineral applications, you know, uh, hot springs or uh, mud baths or hormonal creams that don't get broken down by the stomach acid. You can rub it on yourself and it can still have an effect. Mm-hmm. 
There's also, speaking of uh, sulfur compounds, Elliot, there's like the, the stuff DMSO. And I don't know if people have ever tried that before, but it's like a solvent that will permeate the skin much easier and will actually bind onto other things to permeate the skin. And I've heard stories about people using that. Like one time a person I know actually cleaned an area with rubbing alcohol and then put on the DMSO cream. And they said they actually felt a buzz because the DMSO actually like pulled the alcohol in with it when it was going into the skin. Hmm. So that DMSO stuff is pretty amazing. I mean, it has a lot of health benefits in and of itself, um, but it's also very good as a vehicle for getting other things in through the skin. But you have to be very careful with it because if there's anything on your skin that shouldn't be getting in and you use the DMSO cream on it, then that's going to get in. So you got to be, you have to be very careful with it. And I guess you'd probably want to also make sure that it's good quality DMSO uh, that it's not contaminated with anything and at the same time probably um, contained in some kind of container that's not plastic, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And the same can be said for essential oils. So some people have a real sensitivity to essential oils, something like tea tree is really touted as a good treatment for skin ailments, but sometimes it causes a major reaction almost instantaneously. Mm. Yeah, I kind of burned myself with tea tree oil once. Really? Some of these essential oils need to be diluted quite a bit before you put them on your skin. Yeah, I've had bad experiences with oregano oil before using it topically. where it was just kind of like, why did I do that? That was terrible. <laughs> it just burns. Yeah. So, so if we're talking about skin, the first thing that probably comes to mind, it, or if we're talking in the context of healthy skin, for many people, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess in our modern world, is some kind of cosmetic some kind of external um, applicant that you can put put on your skin or that you can wash your skin with. Um, since this is a, a show on health and wellness, so we're talking about the health of the skin, um, people generally associate good, good skin with creams, with yeah. ointments, products. with products. Um, and I think that's a, probably due to all of the marketing that's happened in the last sort of 50 60 years mm-hmm. um but the question is is there any truth to that you know because i grew up to believe or i was told or led to believe that okay if you want to have healthy skin then what you need to do is you need to use this assortment of products to apply locally onto your face every day in the morning in the afternoon before a shower after shower before bedtime and whatnot mm-hmm. um and I knew lots of people who did that. I personally never did it, um, but I didn't have very good skin either. So I didn't really know much better. But the point that I'm trying to make is that people are generally, um, this is the route that they go. If they've got poor skin, if they've got something like eczema or dermatitis or acne or rosacea, they will go the external route. And and whilst there may be um, you know, many beneficial sort of natural options in terms of applying things locally to your skin. Um, I think what what we're really going to be talking about on this show today, especially, is how I think it's important to shift how we perceive skin health 
And rather than focusing on things external to the body, actually seeing the skin as a window for what's actually going on inside of the body. Yeah. Um, and this is something that many people do not necessarily acknowledge. Yeah. Um, but as we know, the the skin, healthy skin generally indicates that something is working inside and unhealthy skin generally demonstrates some kind of dysfunction. Yeah. Um, so good I think skin that comes from the inside. So what will we say that good skin is? Is this skin that is uniform in color, free from blemish and sores and rashes? Uh, a certain, like picture a, a young child's skin, how smooth it is and how it kind of glows. Um, it's soft. There's no rough patches. Mm -hmm. It's really indicative of good health. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to, I mean, everybody has their own like skin tone and facial features and things that define what looks good for them but you can kind of tell when you see somebody that looks healthy even though they may not always be healthy on the inside but we can always identify like that person has really good skin mm. yeah it's it seems one of those things that's i guess you can try to categorize it mm. you can try to sort of classify uh, you know give it various attributes and say this is what constitutes good skin but at the same time, someone could have all of those attributes, but not mm -hmm. necessarily have the, it's almost like an inbuilt, um, like a, a, an innate part of uh, human perception. It's hard to put into words, mm. but there's almost like a glow. Yeah. And you, you know, it's not very often in the modern world that you come across someone with really healthy skin. Yeah. Mm. And it seems that it seems that, like you said, I think it was you said, Doug, sometimes someone can have really healthy skin um, and they may actually not be very healthy inside. Okay. I've met quite a few people with things like chronic fatigue syndrome who have really good skin, mm. but they can't get out of bed in the morning and they sleep for 14 or 15 hours every day. So they're not healthy. But what I would say is that, okay, if someone's got healthy skin, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're unhealthy. But if someone's got an unhealthy skin, it's a good chance that they are unhealthy. Yeah. In some way. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. It's interesting too, because the, you know, the whole skin, like, like you were talking about Elliot, like when we think of good skin, we think of somebody having products and it's like, Oh, you know, I see this person has healthy skin. What product are you using? And I think it's unfortunate because I mean, as we're about to get into the idea, like the skin grows from the inside, right? So it's like your skin is constantly regenerating, like we said. And if your skin is unhealthy, then that is an indication that something on the inside isn't right. But people's first go-to to that is an external solution. And the problem is that like, you know, in holistic health circles, um, where people really should know this kind of thing and kind of be more on board with kind of thing it, they they really aren't they're still looking for external stuff it's just it has to be natural it has to not have all these phthalates and all these other kinds of garbage in them which i think is good but at the same time it's like they're not they're still not going to kind of the root cause of what the problem is where the root cause is obviously like something internal is going wrong um, and that is reflecting on the skin and it's now almost like this 
cosmetic and um, this cosmetic industry has kind of just absorbed this kind of natural thing. And so it's like all their products are kind of natural and that's still everybody's kind of go-to. So it's kind of like, I want to be natural, but instead of going to the root cause of the problem and trying to solve it that way, you just go for natural products. It's mm -hmm. uh, I think it's kind of unfortunate because it really like to solve skin issues, you got to dig pretty deep, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> well, I have a question for maybe you, Elliot, or all of you here. Um, what about delayed reactions? So say you have a, an allergy to something and you eat it and you don't get an issue in your skin for maybe days or weeks. Mm. You know, like uh, it could be anything, really. Uh, all of a sudden, though, you have patchy dry spots or itching and it's hard to kind of pin down what it is i mean i know in the past we've talked about the importance of the elimination diet but how would you track something like that or how would you kind of know if it was something out of the ordinary that was causing you this ailment i mean if you're looking at like a three-day or four-day delayed reaction it's going to be pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be really hard. I mean, people try for years and they don't, they don't identify. I think in, in that regard to really identify what it was simply from looking at sort of what you've got right in front of you without doing any kind of testing or anything, then you would probably have to go on like a really restrictive elimination diet mm -hmm. to be able to find that out. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's sometimes the way that the immune system works. You know, you have different types of immune cells, they're called immune globulins, and some of them are really fast acting. And so if someone's got a problem with a type of food um, and it evokes what we call an immunoglobulin E reaction, like a, 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 an allergic reaction, they will know within, you know, a very short period of time and they know to stay away from that kind of food. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately if it's an IgG reaction, as we know, that can, <laughs> I mean, it can take days, it can take weeks, you know, <laughs> and it, it's so very difficult to identify something like that. Now it, it also depends on what kind of problem you're looking at as well, because if it's something like acne, um, then there seems to be a very sort of common set of foods or lifestyle factors which which seem to be implicated in this in most people so it's like okay if someone gets acne you can guarantee it's probably dairy if they if they eat dairy and if they don't if it's not dairy it might be sugar. It might be, you know, there are a very specific set of things which are likely to cause acne in someone's diet. Now, if it's something like hives, that's a little bit more difficult to break down because there's no types of foods per se which are known to cause hives. Mm -hmm. It's like hives and, and the more... Uh, histamine type reactions okay there are certain foods which are high in histamine but actually if someone has i mean they could be reacting to any component in the food and that could be affecting 
downstream metabolites and downstream reactions involving things like histamine. So they might associate it with certain foods which contain histamine, whereas actually it could be the salicylates, it could be the phenols, it could be the oxalates. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say, you know? Mm. Does that answer the question? Yes. And then there's also the confounding issue that everybody reacts to everything differently. So one person might have a, a skin reaction to eating a strawberry and another person might get diverticulitis or something. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, Sorry, go ahead, Elliot. I was just going to say some people, some people react in ways or they have reactions which don't involve the skin, but which are typically a lot more covert, let's say, mm -hmm. or less identifiable. It might be brain fog. It could be anxiety. It could be insomnia. It could be something like that, which is a little bit more, little bit more difficult to pinpoint as a dietary-induced problem. Most people don't associate these things with diet, whereas at least with the skin, those of us who are kind of lucky – you know, for me, I can say for me personally, my skin tells me when I'm eating something that I'm not meant to be eating. Mm. Um, and I kind of see that as a gift while at the same time a curse because yeah. it's not nice to have not very nice skin sometimes, but at the same time, it's like a radar. And some people have that. Other people don't have that. And it kind of depends on where the weak point is in the body, I think, and how that kind of communicates that. And so everyone needs to try to get in touch with their own body and find out how it tries to communicate various things, you know? Yeah. Well, you brought up acne, Elliot. And I think I, I learned something interesting when doing the research for this show that apparently around the turn of the century, they were calling acne uh, skin diabetes. Yeah. And the reason for that is that um, it, uh, because they were detecting sugar actually in the skin, if I'm not mistaken, like in the, um, the actual, I don't know if it was in like the, the actual acne itself or something, or they were just had, they, they detected that in, in people with acne, there actually was sugar in the skin. And I've, I found that pretty interesting because it's kind of like I've known for a long time, or I've known for a long time that, um, that acne is related to sugar. You know, it's like teenagers kind of learn that they're, they're kind of like, if somebody's breaking out a lot, people, they'll, people just be like, oh, you shouldn't be eating sugar or you got to lay off the chocolate bars or something like that. Um, it seems like it's, it's kind of like common enough knowledge that uh, it, it's even at the point of just being kind of like hearsay at this point, but they actually have found that there is a connection there that um, eating sugar actually can lead to acne in some people. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, I, I just found that kind of interesting. Well, I think that one of the reasons why acne affects teens more, something that I learned is because uh, it's tied to insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1. And teens, since they're still growing, they have a lot of this uh, hormone in their bodies. And combined with uh, excessive consumption of sugar, it can trigger acne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, 
there seems to be like with acne it's interesting because there seems to be multiple different angles from which to to approach acne for one person it could be like a, an insulin resistance like in the skin but also like systemic so i think the theory goes that if someone is insulin resistant they are going to need to be producing more insulin they're going to have higher blood glucose but they're also going to eventually produce more insulin now insulin is anabolic and it has several downstream effects so one of them is by promoting insulin like growth factor um another one is through enhancing the conversion of testosterone to um a, a downstream metabolite called dihydrotestosterone and so there's an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase and this is this takes testosterone converts it into DHT it's called and insulin insulin like growth factor they speed up this conversion now when this happens sort of in the skin what you get is essentially um the skin starts to produce it's it's basically triggered to start producing more sebum and the, the sebum is like a oily kind of it's made up of fatty acids and cholesterol and that kind of stuff um and so typically if someone's got acne they will have oily skin as well and and it's it's the oily skin which essentially uh, what they call clog the pores in a simplified way. It clogs up the pores of the skin. And then you have like um, inflammation, inflammatory markers like in the skin, pro-inflammatory cytokines. And then you have like the infiltration of some kind of bacteria. And it's like it's the skin barrier is basically disordered in some way. Um, and so this is what typically contributes to inflammatory acne. But now we know that sugar does this this causes this it's kind of high insulin high insulin like growth factor but they're also saying that that might actually be one of the reasons why dairy does as well because dairy especially not so much butter but for certain people it does seems to be butter as well but especially cheese milk uh, milk is a big one yogurt these kinds of things um they I think they either contain insulin like growth factor or they contain certain things which like increase IGF-1 in the body. Um, and so dairy just seems to be such a massive trigger as well. But it only it's only for some people and not for not to, not for many other people. So yeah. So is it the case that in some skin conditions um say the skin is an excretory organ and you have the liver and the kidneys that cleanse the blood and detoxify the blood could you get some kind of skin ailment because your liver and your kidneys are not keeping up internally with cleansing the blood and detoxifying so thereby certain uh bacterias or toxins get pushed out through the skin where if your internal organs were healthier and doing their jobs and your skin would be better. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's quite well established That's what the naturopaths and the sort of um, traditional uh, Ayurvedic or traditional Chinese medicine, that's what kind of what they've said for thousands of years, but ultimately um, yeah, that that's quite, the mechanism is is quite well established in in science, like up to date. Um, that does happen, 
Um, and so, yeah, your two primary routes, so your liver uh, via the, so, so things are processed in the liver, either they go through the kidney or they go through the gut. And so if, if there's inflammation in the gut, I think this is why gut issues and IBS are really tied to so many different skin conditions. Like we'll talk about this a little bit later, I'm sure. But if we look at practically any different kind of skin condition, there's always some kind of dysbiosis or imbalance with the digestive system in some way. And so the digestive system is really the main way that you're going to be excreting, you know, a large majority of your toxins, toxins, um, and those are processed in the liver and they're ideally meant to go back into the gut. Unfortunately, you can have all sorts of blockages in the gut. And if there's any kind of inflammation or anything, then it's going to stop you from dumping all the toxic stuff from the liver into the gut. And then that that overburden will go to the kidney and be added to whatever is being um, offloaded in the kidney. But ultimately, the kidney can only deal with so much because the 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 kidney tubules or the, the nephrons, the cells in the kidney are very sensitive to oxidative stress. And so if you're pumping through loads of stuff um, through the kidneys, that's potentially going to spell trouble. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to divert it towards the skin. Um, and there's, yeah, there's very good reason to think that actually many of the, especially things like eczema um, and many other kinds of um rashes and things may actually be this overburdening of the other routes of detoxification and you're actually using the skin is like the last ditch resort because mm -hmm. if you can't get it through the skin then there's a good chance it's going to circulate around the organs is that's not that's not what you want it's interesting because <clears throat> i was reading about a guy and this guy i can't remember his name unfortunately unfortunately but he was um kind of a health practitioner around um, early part of uh, the, the century, like 1900s or something like that. And he did, he did this test. Um, sorry, it wasn't that early. It was probably around like the, the 60s or 70s actually. But anyway, he, he would stand in a closet and he had everything, like kind of had some plastic laid out so it would catch everything. And he did skin brushing. And he did that for like, I guess, a couple of weeks or something like that. And then he took all of the stuff that had come off and gathered on the plastic on the floor and had it analyzed. And he said it was indistinguishable from urine. What? So it kind of, it, it kind of shows that it kind of basically is the same thing that, that what, what the, the skin is actually what you're putting out of your skin is excretions from inside the body, all the stuff that the body actually needs to get rid of. It's hmm. very interesting experiment. <laughs> Yeah. I'll remember that the next time I do my skin brushing, which after researching for this show, I think I want to start doing that again because I did it for a while and it felt good, but I don't think I did it long enough to notice any like real benefits, except that, you know, it's supposed to be good for the lymph and blood circulation and uh, exfoliating your skin. So it might be a good experiment to try. <laughs> Yeah, I was doing it for a while too, but I similarly kind of fell off because I didn't really notice anything or anything like that. And I, I also, while reading for the show, was kind of like, oh yeah, skin brushing. Maybe I should pick that How up again. How did I forget about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the rationale for doing sauna as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's why it's so um, cherished 
in various parts of the world, Russia, sort of Scandinavia, you know, they, they love their sauna. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably because it makes them feel so good. There's a reason it makes them feel so good apart from releasing endorphins and all this kind of stuff. It's actually really helping their body to get rid of a lot of, a lot of the, the waste. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere about how um, detoxifying from heavy metals um, saunas are really good for actually just getting getting stuff out of your system. It's it's actually really beneficial for that. I remember even reading that it was more efficient actually than than like the urine and getting rid of metals metals that way. I don't know if that's true though, actually. Yeah, aside from the metals as well, especially when it's a far infrared sauna. Mm-hmm. Um, not only metals, but you, you're looking at things like plastics as well. Plastics, mold toxins, um, you know, kind of organic chemicals, BPA um pesticides all of these kinds of things um some of them are like really quite difficult to get rid of into the feces you know if there's some Mm -hmm. kind of gut dysfunction and so it seems to be um a key part i mean many of the doctors who sort of do the functional medicine thing who specialize in things like detoxification one of the key parts of those protocols is actually like daily infrared sauna um and it seems to help people massively um but i think it's one of those things that you kind of take for granted because one it seems so easy it's kind of cheap and uh, and you can't see anything in your sweat can you yeah you like you can't you can't see anything coming out but it's there Sometimes you yeah. can taste it though <laughs> <laughs> It depends if you taste your sweat. I've not. <laughs> you like lick your lips like around your lips. It's not just the salty taste that you taste sometimes. Sometimes I've tasted things that I can't quite identify. Like what is this that's coming out of my skin? But then there are some people who um, can't tolerate getting into a sauna. Mm-hmm. There are some people who don't sweat. Like I've gotten into a far infrared blanket a few times recently and I just did not sweat. I got very, very hot. And other times I've sweated buckets. Hmm. I remember Sherry Rogers saying something. She's the one who wrote that book, uh, detoxify or die. And she said that the longer it takes you to sweat in a, (laughs) the more toxic you were. Yeah. So bad news for you there, Tiff. Okay. (laughs) But exercise is a good way to sweat. I mean, if you can tolerate exercising hard enough to make yourself sweat, mm-hmm. but you have to be in fairly good physical condition, you know, no joint problems or things like that. I think that's maybe a way that some people who are not technically healthy, like uh, back in the day, 20 some years ago, my diet was not that great. I would still exercise and sweat out tons. Maybe that was part of what made me be as healthy or not as healthy as I was at that time, just because of the detoxification of sweating every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, cause there's lots of things that can go wrong um, in the liver. And actually if just going back to, to acne as well, um, I said briefly, briefly before that, 
in some cases of acne at least um it can actually be caused by what is known as a deficiency of glutathione in the liver okay so there's an inflammatory component to acne uh this isn't necessarily something that many um skin cosmetics kind of things not something that they um that they factor in but essentially it's an internal inflammatory um process an inflammatory process in the skin and really if there's some kind of oxidation in the skin you, you need your cells to be able to um to to basically counteract that and they use something called glutathione but then also in the liver you have glutathione which is basically binding up with loads of crap that you come into contact with daily and you know carrying that out in in some way um and so if there is any kind of deficiency in any one of the um any one of the detoxification pathways then it's potentially gonna not necessarily come out in your skin but rather it's going to foster an environment that allows bacteria to to live on your skin and kind of infiltrate into your skin so either either way it seems that your liver is plays a key role in this um and i think that's that's the way that or that's from a, a more traditional perspective you know various of the traditional schools of thought um would would say similar you know they'd say like okay you're hot or cold or you know or your liver is is not working and they didn't have access to like they didn't have access to specialized liver function tests in a laboratory they just kind of palpate and then look at your skin and say well okay your liver or your kidneys and it seems that 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 is actually kind of one of the ways or that is where science has actually taken us now um but aside from that there's also the gut and it's the question is does the gut actually precede problems with the liver and with the kidney because the gut is is the first point of call yeah it's the, it's the first first way really that most things are gonna uh, get into the body we've spoke about things get into the skin but really most of the contact with the external environment is actually in the gut, in the gut and, yeah. and so if anything goes wrong with the gut and so when you look at the clinical research it's so clear there are it's not clear whether it's causative or not i would bet it probably is causative can't guarantee but there are very very strong associations between things like acne vulgaris uh, rosacea atopic dermatitis or eczema in other words um what else are there psoriasis uh, psoriatic arthritis, many different kinds of skin conditions. What do they find? They find certain pathogens living in the gut. They find intestinal permeability. They find elevated levels of bacterial lipopolysaccharide. You know, if you've got a state of some kind of gut dysfunction, malabsorption, hypochloridria, so low stomach acid, this is frequently found in, in people with acne. Um, it's like, okay, you, you foster an environment in the gut where you're not digesting your fats, you're not digesting your proteins, you're not digesting your carbohydrates, and so you're allowing certain bacteria to thrive, say, in the small intestine. You develop something like an IBS, something like that. You're producing loads of this, um, this 
bacterial metabolite, let's say, it's called lipopolysaccharide. And that can essentially cause leaky gut or it can get through the gut barrier, get into the bloodstream and sort of go around the organs. It can get to the skin, it can get to the liver, it can deplete the liver's resources of glutathione and all the other antioxidants. Then it can cause inflammation systemically. Mm. And it's like many of the skin eruptions and things could also be a manifestation of of gut dysfunction, you know? So that's a key point in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. So anything that's kind of interfering with your digestion <clears throat> or just eating crappy food, essentially, um, can change the bacterial balance of the gut, which has all kinds of downstream effects that can then therefore end up showing up in the skin. So it's not necessarily like a direct connection, but the bacterial balance of the gut can have a direct, an indirect effect on the skin. Mm-hmm. Is that essentially what you're saying, Elliot? Yeah, basically. Um, it's That's what it seems like from the research. And in terms of anecdotal um, reports, people who have skin, skin issues, the flare-ups of the skin issues generally tend to correlate well with when they've eaten something that they don't agree with when they've eaten something that they can't digest, when they've eaten something that causes them a flare-up in their IBS symptoms, it manifests in the skin. Um, Like I said, you know, in my own case, I don't digest dairy very well at all. And whenever I eat dairy, I know about it because it comes out of my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, it seems to be a very common thing. Um, But at the same time, could it also be... I mean, you've got the bacterial component, but then if someone has digestive issues, that is also very likely going to um, stop their body's ability from absorbing certain nutrients. And there are certain nutrients which are so important for skin health. Look at zinc. So if someone's eating a diet really high in grains, grains contain phytic acid and phytic acid basically binds with zinc and stops it from being absorbed. Likewise, coffee, if someone's drinking six coffees a day with every meal, then that inhibits zinc absorption. And if you don't have enough zinc or if you have chronic diarrhea, for instance, good chance you're not absorbing much. And zinc is so essential for the skin. Um, that could be one of, that could be the route by which the gut affects the skin. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I heard something interesting about zinc, actually. There was some speculation that perhaps the reason teenage boys tend to have bad skin is that they're engaging in a certain activity quite frequently that depletes them of zinc. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but. Well, well, I looked at some of the research um, on the the amount of zinc that a male would typically lose via ejaculation Mm. um chris masterjohn spoke about this a couple of times i think and he basically says that anything sort of less than two times or two times in a day is probably not gonna have that much of an effect but if it's any more than that then it's theoretically possible and what we have to consider about teenagers as well is that Teenage males specifically are building a body structure. They're building muscles. They're building bone. They're they're broadening out. 
and to be able to build muscle you need so much zinc mm. in fact m- much of your zinc stores are actually in your muscle um and so you on proteins in fact on every single protein in the body practically um you have like when a protein folds like that it sticks together it does that via these things called zinc fingers okay so zinc is essentially a component of every enzyme in the body in every single protein Hmm. um or it's it's needed for the synthesis of every protein and every enzyme okay because it's it does lots of cool things basically. And so if, if a teenage, you know, teenage adolescent male is building muscle, they're physically active. They're, you know, maybe going to the gym, they're, you know, playing football or whatever, then their zinc requirement is going to be much higher. Hmm. Um, likewise, you need zinc to synthesize testosterone. And if their testosterone is high, that's going to place more requirements on their zinc status. And so if their zinc is going towards all of these different things, then there's a good chance that the skin is going to, is not going to be prioritized. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. No. Yeah, absolutely. So. Do we want to talk about another weird skin issue like uh, skin tags? Those little hanging balls of flesh that are usually found in your folds or on the back of your neck, uh, your armpits. And one thing that I learned not too long ago was that they could be a sign of prediabetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently they're correlated with insulin resistance. That's something that uh, some way that insulin resistance can actually show up externally and one thing they were saying about it actually is that doctors can use this as a way of kind of not as a diagnosis necessarily but as as something to look for if their patient shows up and starts having skin tags and they showed up you know it's something they hadn't had before and suddenly suddenly they start showing up then it's an indication that maybe they are heading towards actually doctors can recognize that i think Well, so that um, people who have skin tags have higher blood glucose readings and higher triglycerides. And one of the things that cause high blood glucose and triglycerides are overconsumption of carbohydrates. But one of the questions that I have about these skin tags, like what, is it like a protective mechanism? Why, what's the purpose of having these little fleshy protuberances? Is there something the body is trying to push out? And no. I, I can't figure it out. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, I've read about that in the past. You have these, the weird kind of discoloration in the neck. Yeah. Yeah. So like hyperpigmentation in the folds of the neck and the, the thickening like edema of the neck, but then also these weird skin tags, especially on the neck, like on the back of the neck. I don't know what the mechanism of that is. I have I have absolutely no idea why that would happen. I'd I'd like to know. Yeah. I'm sure there's a reason for it, but yeah. it seems a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, maybe it's some sort of early, early warning signal. Mm-hmm. What a strange signal. <laughs> Maybe it is protective in some way, some way to protect the internal organs from, you know, the burden of 
too much sugar and they just push it out. But that's, I guess that's how it comes out. I don't know. Well, in terms of, I mean, in the context of skin tags, um, there are, are they referred to? I'm not sure what they're referred to um, in the public eye. It might be liver spots, but essentially they're discoloration. It's like small blobs of darkened material on the on the face, mm. uh, and it's usually in older or elderly individuals. Um, and I think that they refer to them as liver spots. I'm not mm. entirely sure. But again, there's a... I don't know why they why they or how they knew to say that it's liver spots, but there's a you know a good correlation with the mechanism mm. of what that is. It's basically oxidized um polyunsaturated fatty acids. So, you know, you have omega-6 fatty acids and basically they oxidize and they form like a pigment called lipofuscin. Um, and this, the reason it goes dark is because of the iron. So it oxidizes the iron and you have like these dark discolor. Like if you look at a picture of Morgan Freeman, like you'll see he's got them all over his face. Um, but there's, you know, I'm sure if you just Google it, you can see, but essentially, yeah, that, I think there's a pretty good correlation between when you get those spots on your face and the fact that your liver is not very healthy. It's overburdened with all of these pro-inflammatory fats and you're oxidizing iron. So, you know, there's a ton of oxidative stress. Your liver's not necessarily dealing with it. And for some reason, you get these deposits on your face. Hmm. Um, Are and they actually deposits? Like they're little bumps? Or is it just a discoloration? It looks a Morgan Freeman's face. It looks like little moles to me. I have some, and I have relatives who have that too. And if you look like on recent pictures of Bill Cosby's, his face is like that too. So I don't know, like if they had that when they were younger, or if it's something that just got more pronounced as they got older. Uh, yeah. Generally, they look a little bit like moles. Um, mm-hmm. they. They, they can happen um, on people's hands as well. So they're like yeah. um, discoloration, discolorations and some of them can look like moles. Other times it just looks like brown patches or like freckles yeah. on the hands. If yeah. you look at a 90 year old's hands, you usually see that the hand goes really kind of discolored and that you've got all of these sort of brown spots on the skin. And that's yeah. basically like oxidized, degraded toxic fats which for some reason deposit in the skin um but again it's a pretty good indication i guess the reason i'm trying to say it is 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 just to kind of um reinforce the point that the skin is you know it's quite an amazing communication system it tells you when something is is essentially going wrong inside Mm -hmm. what's interesting though is that these things like i had a skin tag show up at one point in my life like I don't know. I might've been in puberty or something. I don't know. It was a long, long time ago and it's never gone away. So it's kind of interesting that these things seem to show up. And, but even if you correct the problem, they don't disappear. At least as far as I can tell, they don't disappear unless there's something still wrong with me. (laughs) Could be. 
But I think it says something about aging too, like back to what Tiffany was saying earlier in the show about babies having glowing skin and very clean and um, a nice smell. And then you'll notice with children who have allergies, like usually after they stop breastfeeding, start introducing foods, almost instantaneously they'll break out in rashes, whether it's diaper rash or even thrush. And then if the child continues to eat that way throughout life, I mean, maybe these skin tags, these things show up later in life because the system is just overburdened. Yeah, it seems to be that way. Well, maybe there's some correlation, too, between, you know, stopping breastfeeding or formula and starting introducing some foods. And then you notice, like, maybe around the ages of four to six, that's when you get these skin eruptions like the chicken pox or measles or mm. things like that. That seems almost universally all children go through that. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and it seems like a lot of children now have chronic eczema issues mm-hmm. or allergic reactions, you know, the whole peanut thing. And, mm-hmm. and so it seems again, like they're, they're overloaded. Well, maybe uh, like chicken pox and measles is like, a detoxification that everybody needs to go through at that point in their life. And then once those, that kind of immune response gets learned, then later in life you can become healthier because there've been some studies where like if people don't get chicken pox as a child or measles as a child, they end up, you know, with more allergies or if they catch those diseases when they're older, it can be fatal in some cases. So yeah, I read a study, actually, it was a really recent one um, posted the other day, and it was basically talking about how the measles virus was um, like one of the most potent anti-cancer agents. Yeah, I read like, that as well. um, Like known, like it yeah. was killing cancer cells like selectively, not killing other cells. It was just killing the cancer cells. So it's like, oh, is there some kind of relationship here? That's very interesting. I mean, there's also been, uh, there was one, someone in like the alternative health circles who postulated that maybe um, chicken pox is actually one of the ways that babies, similar to what you were just saying, Tiff, one of the ways that babies or children actually detoxify certain metabolic um products that they've gained from their mom that they don't necessarily need like Mm -hmm. this person was speculating that it's a way for babies to actually get rid of oxalates so they're getting loads of oxalates from their mother's breast milk um whatever stored in the body and actually by having chicken pox they they work with the um with the virus to essentially like get all this stuff out really quickly without overburdening other detox pathways. I don't know if there's any, any truth to that because there's, there's no, there's no evidence for that whatsoever, but it was just an idea. It was just a, an idea. And I think it's, it's interesting to contemplate. Well, Stephanie Seneff was talking when we interviewed Stephanie Seneff a while back, she was postulating different things like this, like that different, um, uh, bacteria or uh, viruses or stuff like that actually do have kind of a, a symbiotic beneficial effect, even though they might have a negative, um, a negative effect as well. Um, 
overall they might actually be helping to compensate for something so it's interesting i mean it's it's very difficult to to actually know whether that's that's true or not but it's really fascinating to think about actually yeah maybe it's just some sort of health rite of passage that everybody should go through in order to strengthen their immune system hmm. Yeah, since the introduction of vaccination, especially for chickenpox, now we see adults getting shingles at mm-hmm. really scary rates. Mm-hmm. And I know I never had chickenpox as a child, but I did get them at 21, and it was the worst experience I've ever oh, had. Geez. And I broke out in them so bad. They were in my nose and my eyelids. Uh. And I actually had to be in the hospital. Well, they have to separate you, right? Because you're quote unquote contagious. Mm -hmm. And they ended up giving me a very strong medication for herpes virus. Hmm. And that seemed to be the only thing that actually did away with the intense itching on every single nerve ending in my body. Oh, my God. And I will say one thing that helped if anyone as an adult gets chicken pox is um, taking a bath with um, golden seal root. That really seemed to help eliminate the, the intense discomfort with it. So do we want to talk about some remedies since you mentioned golden seal? Sure. Yeah. Well, witch hazel has um, has a pretty good reputation. It's been used for a very long time. I guess Native Americans used to use it. And they say that it helps uh, certain skin elements. It helps swelling. It's astringent because it can make the proteins in the skin cells kind of draw more tightly together. Um, it's been used for varicose veins, hemorrhoids, sunburns, bug bites, stings. Um, stretch marks. Um, People have really good, I guess, good testimonials about using witch hazel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never really, I always forget about that one. Like if I do too. And I was like, Oh, uh, always. Yeah. Witch hazel doesn't really come up when I think of things to help cure. What I, my go-to usually is aloe. I find that aloe is really good, especially if it's like a wound or something like that on the skin or some kind of abrasion or something. I find that aloe works like really well, like even just for like razor burn or something like that. Aloe seems to work like amazing. It's my go to for a lot of different stuff. I think um, I think that's why they put it in so much stuff. I don't know. I think fresh aloe is probably a lot better than a lot of the products you get out there. But yeah, I find aloe is really good. And you can drink it too. You can. You Although it does have a laxative effect. It is disgusting. Yeah, it's really gross. I agree. Yeah. Well, another one, I mean, the thing is, like we were saying about the skin, it's like a lot of it is coming from like internal. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of like what you're feeding yourself. I think, you know, in general, if you're having skin issues and your skin is not good, the thing you really have to do is look at your diet. You know, witch hazel, aloe, all that kind of stuff is probably not going to do very much. Um, you know, cutting the sugar out, cutting the carbs in general out. Um, try cutting out uh, dairy as well, because a lot of people do seem to have problems with that. Going low carb, ketogenic, 
um, I think those are kind of the 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 first steps, really. Um, doing things that will boost your collagen, like bone broth. Bone broth is like fantastic as far as like getting your collagen and other amino acids as well, glycine. Like those things are all um, like what you need to actually build skin. So I'd say like those would be my first go-tos before saying like, you know, try a an herbal or something like that. Yeah. Also, just to add to that, things that I found work fairly well, vit vitamin E for uh, dandruff, that, like, I've had quite a few people who say that that works fairly quickly. Hmm. Um, at the same time, there's quite a lot of research on vitamin E for eczema as well. Um it has kind of like an immunomodulatory effect, but it's also an antioxidant in the skin. So um, it, the research is, is quite clear that vitamin E can, can be really helpful for um, atopic dermatitis, it's called. Um, for acne, um, zinc and vitamin A are like, I mean, they used to use Accutane, some people still do, I think. Accutane is basically isotetranoin or tetranoin. And that is like a synthetic vitamin A, like analog. It's a synthetic form of vitamin A, but vitamin A is like, is seriously potent at improving acne. So if someone's got acne, there's a good chance that it's either something to do with zinc or vitamin A. And by taking those two things, which you, I mean, which you get on like an animal-based diet or with a diet really high in animal products, especially things like liver. I mean, liver is is great in zinc and it's really great for vitamin A as well. Thing is, in, in terms of vitamin A, it's important to understand that just eating carrots and other sort of orange and red uh, fruits and vegetables isn't necessarily going to cut it because unless you know your genetics, I would. I would err on the side of caution because if you're like Caucasian, you know, if you're from the Northern hemisphere, like, like I am, there tends to be a lot of us who have a certain genetic profile. Uh, I am one of those people. So it's called the BCRO1, I believe. And it basically <clears throat> codes for an enzyme, which converts um, plant derived vitamin A so like carotene and the carotenoids into usable vitamin A. Okay. So, so you can't, you can't use the stuff that you find in plants to protect your skin. You need to convert it into active vitamin A. And if you've got a certain genetic profile, then you, you may not necessarily be able to do that very well. And I find that if like my requirement for organ meat, is is really quite high and i can't just eat things like carrots and stuff my skin is generally of suboptimal quality when i rely on those things for my vitamin a i need to have things like organs you know heart liver uh egg yolks and th that kind of stuff um so that's something important also another thing that has been shown to be be helpful is actually taking probiotics so like oral probiotics has actually been shown to be really helpful along with, uh, I would probably some kind of digestive enzymes or something if you feel like it's coming from your gut. But probably the most significant factor, if it's coming in from your gut, is actually getting rid of the foods that you, the, 
don't agree with your gut at the moment, you know, because mm-hmm. you could take all the supplements in the world, but you know, if there's something that your body is not agreeing with, I really don't, I'm, in my experience in, in all of the stuff that I've read over the years, I don't think there's any amount of supplements that you can take, which can fix Hello, an intolerance or a lack of tolerance to food. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe it be, can be done long term after you've sort of like had a long period away from it. But I, I seriously don't think that you can just eat a modern diet. If you know, if your skin issues are a problem and you want to fix them, you're going to seriously need to change your diet. Like you're going to have to. I think dropping grains is actually another thing because grains like there, I know specifically with um, uh, psoriasis, uh, grains are supposed to be really bad. Like so many people end up, they drop grains from their diet and their psoriasis clears right up. I mean, not everybody. So it's not like necessarily a cure all, but honestly, I think, I don't think grains are really food. I think that people are really doing themselves a disservice by eating those. And, um, so I think Hello. if you are having skin hey, issues, welcome. yeah, it's like Elliot is saying, like, you know, look to the diet. There's also something else which is external. <laughs> it is external, but also sunlight is pretty good uh, in some cases. In other cases, it can actually exacerbate like a skin issue. In general terms, with things like psoriasis or things like um, eczema or acne, it's usually quite good. In other conditions, like sometimes hives, things like that, sunlight can actually trigger something like that. So you have to kind of find your tolerance, but also things like photobiomodulation. So low level laser therapy or red light therapy. That's generally got some very good research behind it uh, in terms of improving the skin health. Um, Living an indoor lifestyle just probably isn't the best thing, you know? Also watching what you put on your face as well. Like if you're coming into contact with like, I don't know, all all of this toxic stuff, you know, these artificial chemicals and, and everything, and you're touching your face all the time. Like I wouldn't be bothered about the, the bacteria. You know, if, you, if you're working out in the garden, yeah, touch your face all you want. I don't think that will be a problem. But when you're like, say, dealing with receipts, or you know you, you're touching plastic and all when you you're on your computer and all the the plastic from your computers like you know actually like getting into your fingers and then you're touching your face and stuff it's being mindful about like what you're putting on your skin and and stuff like that i think that's quite important as well mm-hmm. well you know it's interesting kind of to add to that what you're saying elliot is now they're actually making in the quote-unquote natural health line probiotic lotions Mm. so lotions with probiotics added to them so they must be kind of on to this theory you know about the gut issue and skin issues but i I couldn't believe when i uh, saw they were carrying a product line that has it's actually called probiotic lotion well i wonder about that it might be a bit of a gimmick but honestly um i remember we talked about it on the show a while back when we did our show about MRSA, there was the guy who actually cured his MRSA skin infection by using topical kombucha. So I, I even occasionally will take like kombucha. I've got something like a, a spray bottle that I brewed myself and I just spray it on my skin. I think it's a good idea to kind of just keep the, the bacterial balance. 
balanced. And stay away from hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, constantly washing your face as well. I think this is bizarre. I don't think human beings ever did this. Like, I, I, I honestly, I think you would, you would wash your face with water. Um, the idea that you should be washing your face multiple times every day, like, that's problematic because what you're doing is when you use soap to wash your face, you're washing off all of the natural oils, the sebum, the, you know, sebaceous liquid and everything like that. You've got natural antimicrobials on your skin designed to protect your skin from the various bacteria which cause things like infection which cause things like acne or inflammation on your skin and when you're washing your face what you're doing is you're actually washing off the oil and you're triggering it to produce more sebum you're triggering it to produce more but at the same time you're taking off all of the antimicrobial protection from your skin mm -hmm. so ultimately what people i mean there's so many testimonials of people who finally just stopped washing their face and their skin cleared up hmm. like just stop glad touching to it. hear that because i've never <laughs> been a face washer <laughs> Me neither. Is it, just don't touch yeah. it just leave it <laughs> i wash my yeah, face in the shower wet put water on my face in the shower but i rarely That's use it. soap on my face maybe i should stop using soap on my face mm -hmm. interesting i learned something today and just in general for skin that gets a little dry like i have to wash my hands a lot tallow is really good for moisturizing your skin i've read that yeah and even things like jojoba oil or kukui nut oil i mean i use massage oil on my face and people are horrified they can't believe that I'm putting this on my face, but it, I, I don't get a reaction from it at all. And as long as it doesn't have any ingredients, but just one of those good, healthy oils seems to work. Yeah. Sounds like some uh, pretty good advice there. Does um, anyone else have anything to add on skin? I think we've covered it pretty good. Okay. So, um, shall we, uh, shall we go to the pal segment? Yeah, yeah. let's do that. Welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. The spring is upon us and it means all kinds of skin allergies. And there are animals, particularly dogs and particularly Labradors, but not only, they are sensitive to all kinds of allergens. They can excessively lick their paws and other body parts. So watch the following video in order to learn uh, possible solutions that you can try at home. And don't forget to stay till the end to watch a funny animal video. Have a great weekend and goodbye. If your dog is excessively licking his or her paws, then you need to watch this video. So for the majority of dogs who have this, where they're excessively licking their paws, I mean, the first big thing I say is like, just check them, do a basic exam. Just make sure there isn't some type of foreign body. There's not anything in between your 
in your dog's pad, in between the digits. I mean, have a good look. All right, Pipster. The most common cause by far is dog allergies. Your dog is having some type of allergic reaction, be it to food, be it to something environmental, such as what's happening now with the spring, we have all this pollen causing them to itch, and it's just showing up as excessive paw licking. But secondarily, many of these dogs have an underlying yeast infection. So what happens is that they've got an, a primary allergy causing their skin to react. Secondarily, yeast can overgrow, making them very itchy. So this is my anti-paw licking foot soap. So what you're gonna need is one cup of green tea. So I've used one tablespoon of loose green tea leaves. I put it in about two cups of water in the bottom. You wanna let it sit for about 15 to 20 minutes till it cools down. Cool enough that it's comfortable to touch to your skin. A cup for me. Mm. And a cup for Pippi's foot. Or your dog's foot. So we're using two tablespoons of this. It is, does especially well at being anti-yeast. And we know that is a problem with many of the dogs that have excessive paw licking and primary skin allergies. Third in this wonderful smelling concoction, we're gonna have one tablespoon of salt. Here is nice Himalayan salt from the co-op. Just plain old sodium chloride, regular table salt is fine. Fourth, we're gonna add 10 drops of lavender essential oil. I especially like the essential oils from Young Living based on the quality of the product, how well it works, and how it's been backed up by research. So we're just gonna mix this all together. The cup of green tea, the two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, the one tablespoon of salt, and the 10 drops of lavender essential oil. And now that I've added in the lavender oil, it actually smells pretty good. Okay, Pipster, let's try the foot. So here's my cup or so of fluid. Just want to immerse your dog's toes in it. Good girl. Good girl, Pippi. Okay, it doesn't hurt. Um, you want to ideally leave that for a full five minutes. If your dog has any type of open wound, don't use this because the apple cider vinegar can be quite irritating. I'd rather you just use something like the green tea as a soap first. Five minutes later, Pippi's foot is soaked. She actually has kind of a pleasant smell. Now let's just see, will she lick it or not? You can soak your dog's foot twice daily for seven days and then assess whether or not it's being effective. But sometimes more unexpected sounds grab our attention. Like this desert rain frog. Squeaking viral sensation. Eleven million hits and counting. It sounds like a dog toy. But actually, this is the sonorous war cry of a very angry frog. Ferocious. That was cute. <laughs>
I thought it was a squeaky toy. Yeah, it did sound exactly like a squeaky toy. Kind of looked mm. like one too, actually. <laughs> right. Well, um, well, thank you everyone for listening. I think that's everything for today. We've uh, we had a look at the skin. We saw how it does some weird and wonderful things, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, you have a bit of a better idea about how to troubleshoot some of your skin issues. I think the key is to look inside rather than outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I want to thank my co-hosts and uh, thanks everyone for listening. We tune in next week um, for the next show. So thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye.